Hello and welcome back to Pan Am, a podcast that examines Paris, wrinkles and all. Today, some war wounds. Now, you don't get to be as old and lived in as Paris without a few scars along the way. And there are plenty which I'd like to investigate, but today I thought we might go and have a look at one which dates all the way back to the Revolution and which we can blame on a certain young Corsican, and in the words of historian Thomas Carlyle, a whiff of grape shot. Pyramide. Pyramide. Here we are at l'église Saint-Roch in the first arrondissement of the stylish Rue Saint-Honoré. Now, Saint-Honoré is the patron saint of bakers, I thought you might like to know, and there is even a delicious Saint-Honoré cake named after him. You're probably thinking that that's very fitting for a French street, but ironically, Saint-Honoré, the street, not the saint, is actually full of very expensive high-end boutiques where only the thinnest and wealthiest of women and men shop and I am sure they have never indulged in a Saint-Honoré cake or any baked goods whatsoever. But I digress. Saint-Roch, the saint, is rather less tastily the patron saint of dogs, plague, cholera, skin rashes and false imprisonment. His story, because I really do love a good saint story, goes as follows. He was a 14th century French nobleman and legend claims that he was marked from birth by a red cross on his chest so he was a holy type from the very beginning. Unfortunately both of his parents died while he was still young so he moved to Rome where he cared for plague victims and miraculously cured them. Unfortunately, he contracted the dreaded disease himself and decided to head out to the woods to die rather than be a burden on others because, you know, he was a saint. He was, however, saved by a dog who brought him food and licked his wounds, which began to heal. And so it's for that reason he's usually depicted with a nasty knee wound and a dog bringing him some bread to eat, which is exactly what we can see here in this 17th century church. The church itself took over a hundred years to complete, largely due to lack of funds. The first stone was laid by Louis XIV in 1653, but it was only finished in 1754. There were a number of notable people buried here, including André Le Nôtre, who was a landscape architect, and it was him who laid out the gardens of Versailles, the playwright Pierre Corneille, the philosopher Denis Diderot, and it was also where the Marquise de Sade got married on the 17th of May, 1763. One can only shudder at what the poor bride must have gone through on their wedding night. I'm sure St. Roch was much needed in the disease-filled and pestilent streets of 17th century Paris, but today, not so much. Instead, you're more likely to find a lovely classical concert going on in the church. Now, if you look carefully, you'll see the facade of the church has been slightly damaged and you can still see these marks and where they've been repaired. These marks, as I've said, date back to the revolution and they tell an interesting and infamous story, one that left its mark both on the edifice of St. Roch and indeed on the career of Napoleon Bonaparte. I'm sure you all know a little bit about Napoleon, but if you don't have his history at your fingertips, let's have a brief summary. He was born on the 15th of August 1769 and he was the fourth child of minor Corsican aristocrats. He was a man of great skill and ambition and he distinguished himself in the army early on becoming a general at the age of only 24 and he's recognised pretty much universally as a military genius. There are many myths surrounding Napoleon. We mentioned some last week about both the man and his reign and one of them is that he was cruel and ruthless. 
and the events that took place here in 1795 went in some way to creating this myth. So what actually happened? The French Revolution had seen radical social and political reforms, particularly for Catholics. The revolution's strong anti-Catholic stance created an opportunity for an alliance between the pro-Catholics and the pro-royalist factions, and the Armée Catholique et Royale was created and quickly gained support from the British. There were a number of uprisings and battles, ultimately defeated by the revolutionary armies. However, in 1795, a group led by the Comte d'Artois started marching towards Paris and were bolstered by British troops and weapons. There was a strong feeling that the young royalist supporters in Paris, known as the Jeunesse Dorée, or Gilded Youth, would also join in. There was even speculation and rumour that the National Guard made effect. The situation was looking critical. General Baron de Menu was given the task of defending the capital. But with 5,000 troops at his disposal, compared to about 30,000 in the royalist army, things were not looking good. The general's initial attempts to quell the royalist uprising was seen by many as rather weak. He had tried to negotiate with the rebels, but this only resulted in the rebels gaining in confidence and calling for greater uprisings. There was a real fear that more would flock to the royalist cause. Baron de Menu was dismissed, and the young general Napoleon Bonaparte offered his assistance, and he was told to use any means necessary to quash the revolt. Napoleon had already distinguished himself at battle against the Royalist army, with difficult odds, in the Battle of Toulon in 1793. His strategic planning and courage saw him win a decisive victory over the Royalists, even though the odds were stacked against him. So then on the 5th of October, although you often see it written as the 13th Vondermeer. Now, what is the 13th Vondermeer, I hear you ask? Very good question. Let's quickly turn to the Encyclopaedia Britannica for a definition. French revolutionaries believed they did not simply topple a government, but established a new social order founded on freedom and equality. Far from limiting reforms to the state, revolutionaries sought to align French institutions and mores on the basis of the new republican ideals through a multitude of changes, from recognising France's regional divisions to abandoning the terms monsieur and madame in favour of more egalitarian citoyen and citoyenne. To mark the advent of the new Age of Liberty, they also replaced, in October 1793, the old Gregorian calendar with a new Republican calendar. Henceforth, the year of the official proclamation of the Republic, 1792, would become Year One. In this secular calendar, the 12 months of the year were named after natural elements, while each day was named for a seed, tree, flower, fruit animal or tool, replacing Saints' Day's names and Christian festivals. The Republican calendar was abandoned by Napoleon on January the 1st, 1806. So, for example, they had um, uh, Florial, which was April to May, and this is the month of flowers, and Thermidor, which is July to August, is the warm month, or Pluvoise, which is January to February, and this is the month of rain, so you can see how they tried to make the months sound like the month they represented. The Saints' Day, as, as the encyclopaedia mentions, were also replaced with more day-to-day -day things like the flowers and vegetables and so on. So you can look up your name, if you like, and see what you'd have been called if you'd been born on that day. I would have been called Charlotte. So I'll put in a link and then you can look up your day. But now, back to our story. So then, on the 13th Vendemere, or 5th of October 1795, Napoleon took charge. He ordered 40 cannons to be brought to him. 
he placed two cannons at what used to be the Rue saint nicaise and another facing the church, with others in strategic spots within the city. Napoleon then took the unprecedented decision to use grape shot. Grape shot consists of musket balls placed into muslin bags that rip open once they're fired from a cannon. Using grape shot against a civilian uprising had never been done in Paris. Napoleon did not fire until the first shot was made against him, but then he returned fire with devastating effect. Between two to three hundred rebels were killed against very little losses, maybe half a dozen of Napoleon's men, even though they'd been massively outnumbered. It was a turning point in his career. He was given a promotion for avoiding civil uprising, with some applauding him for saving the revolution, but while others criticise him for being too harsh and even inhumane. But we must keep in mind the historical context of the time. Paris, in 1795, had seen horrendous mob uprisings and riots. It was also an especially bloody time in French history, what with all the recent beheadings. Napoleon himself had been in Paris during the September massacres, a particularly shameful and barbaric episode. The government feared that foreign and royalist armies might attack Paris, and they believed that they planned to release the city's prisoners, who would then join them in revolt. So to avoid this, around 1,200 prisoners were murdered without trial, including 115 priests and even a number of children. Allowing a mob uprising in central Paris could have been disastrous, and some even feared may have led to civil war. Napoleon's actions were indeed harsh, but arguably quelled a potentially greater disaster and averted further loss of life. Napoleon believed in the revolution and was defending it. Now, for some, it's interesting to think of Napoleon as saving the revolution, even counterintuitive, when just a few years later, in 1804, he would go ahead and crown himself emperor, and for many, destroy the revolution entirely. But that is another story for another day. Napoleon continues to this day to be a complicated figure in French history. France does not celebrate any Napoleonic anniversaries, and there's still a pull between those that see him as a strong and enlightened leader and those that see him as a tyrant and megalomaniac. During World War I, Hitler and Mussolini both showed great admiration for Napoleon, which did nothing for his reputation, linking in some people's minds the empire-building ambitions of Napoleon with Hitler. Many, of course, lost their lives in the wars Napoleon waged, although, to be fair, more wars were declared against Napoleon than he started himself. Ultimately defeated by a coalition force at Waterloo, the British sent him to St Helena in the middle of the ocean to be forgotten. They were unsuccessful in this endeavour, however, as Napoleon undoubtedly left his mark in a very real way and not just on this church. His complicated legacy, however, means that although there were a number of streets in Paris named after his great victories, such as Pyramid, Rivoli or Austerlitz, the man himself is conspicuous in his absence. There is but one street simply called Rue Bonaparte in the Sixth, and only one statue of Napoleon himself, which sits atop the Vendôme column in Place Vendôme. But despite his absence, Napoleon can be seen throughout Paris, through his building projects. He believed that men are only great through the monuments they leave behind. 
And today the beautiful Ruder Rivoli, named after his battle in Italy against Austria, gives us a taste of how he envisioned Paris looking. Three bridges built by Napoleon can still be crossed today, Iena, Austerlitz and the lovely Pont des Arts, which is the pedestrian bridge which people like to uh, have picnics on and used to clip those horrible love locks to, but they've all been taken down. Napoleon's reservoirs and sewers are still in use, as are the quays that he built. Projects finished after his exile, like the Arc de Triomphe for the Madeleine Church, also stand today. And the Legion of Honour is still the highest order awarded for military or civil merit. One of my favourite improvements under Napoleon, well I don't know if it was actually his idea, but nonetheless, um, are the street numbers. Although numbering of houses had begun in 1729, each section of the city had its own system and there was no uniformity which resulted in a sort of rather chaotic results. So on February the 5th, 1805, the Prefecture of Police imposed a common system. Even numbers on the right side and odd numbers on the left, with the numbers beginning at the closest point to the Seine and increasing as they went away from the river. The system still remains in place today and makes finding your way much easier. But for all his military might, surely his civil achievements were the most profound and marking. The Napoleonic Code still forms the basis of much of European law today and his lycée school system is still in place. There is so much more, but books have been filled by and about Napoleon, so let's leave it there for the moment. If you would like to visit the great man, then you need to head to the Musée de l'Armée. Napoleon may have died in exile on the obscure and distant island of St Helena, but he was moved back to France and buried with much pomp in a truly remarkable coffin, which is in fact six coffins, one inside the other, one made from iron, mahogany, two in lead, ebony and oak, and all of this wrapped up in a huge red marble sarcophagus. They sit under the gorgeous golden dome of the Royal Chapel in Les Invalides. Napoleon was laid to rest here on the 2nd of December, 1840, nearly 20 years after his death on St Helena, and on the anniversary of his coronation and his greatest victory at Austerlitz. At the entrance to the crypt are two bronze doors with the famous quote from Napoleon's will. Je désire que mes cendres reposent sur le bord de la Seine, au milieu de ce peuple français que j'ai tant aimé. I wish my ashes to be laid to rest on the banks of the Seine amongst the French people whom I loved so much. Okay, that's it for now. Thank you so much for listening and I do hope you enjoyed the podcast. I just wanted to say a special thank you to my Brazilian reviewer who gave me a five-star review. I only have your name as Letia Zavedo. I hope so. Thank you for that. And hello, Alice, and Happy New Year to you too, as well as Marcelo. If you want to find out more information, then do look on my website. There are pictures. That's panampodcast.com. You can follow me on Instagram at panampodcast. Um, and of course, I love hearing your comments and feedback. That's absolutely fantastic. If you'd like to find out more about Napoleon, then I'd highly recommend the BBC podcast by Andrew Roberts. Looking forward to hearing your comments. Take care. Bye bye.